Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Today, we're listening back to the first of two episodes from the start of 2019 on restorative justice. I've chosen these episodes to listen to again because I got a lot of positive feedback from other listeners about these episodes, uh, to which I'd add that they're two of my faves, too. At the end, I'll provide a bit of an update on some services that are available to those of you in Melbourne, Australia, where Curious Creatures are based. Now let's get to it. So, Fiona Landon, um, I'm a restorative justice facilitator. I've been doing restorative justice since about 1998. been working for Project Restore in the area of harmful sexual behaviour since 2005. Uh, my name is David Karp. I am a sociology professor at Skidmore College in the state of New York, uh, USA, and I have um, I've been working in restorative justice, uh, researching it and uh, doing trainings in it and working as a, as a sometimes practitioner for a little over 20 years. We're going to be talking, obviously, about survivors, perpetrators and sexual misconduct. Um, are there particular words that you like to use for those three things? Um, we tend to use survivors um, when we're talking about um, people that are victims of sexual harm. Tend to use the word sexual harm or harmful sexual behaviour um, and sexual violence. Um, and for um, the person who caused the harm, we restorative justice uses the terminology person who caused the harm and person who was harmed. Uh, we often in restorative justice uh, talk about it in terms of sexual harm. Uh, so rather than thinking about it in terms of legal or uh, policy violations, uh, we just focus primarily on harm. And so we do the same thing around survivors or offenders and just think of them in terms of people who've been harmed and people who've caused harm. Uh, but it's often simple to use the more common terms. I'm fine with that too. Can we begin by, can you talk us through what the individual steps are or what happens from the perspective of the person that's been harmed and uh, the person that was the harmer? So um, we can um, provide a process for anyone that um, has experienced sexual harm and it, it can be a referral through the criminal justice system or it can be a self-referral from either party. Um, so most of our work comes when someone has pled guilty to um, a sexual violence charge and then it's referred um, through the courts. Our courts have a legislation that promotes um, and requires a restorative justice for, um, process to be um, referred to if someone has pled guilty. Once we receive the referral, we... Um, make contact with both parties. Um, we talk a little bit about what their needs are, what they might hope to get out of a facilitated conversation. And um, if they're interested in the idea of restorative justice, then we explain what that is. 
and um, we begin a, we move into kind of an assessment phase at that point where we're looking at um, readiness and capacity. So we're looking at um, whether the process is going to be helpful or harmful. If the process would be potentially harmful, then we would make a decision not to proceed. Um, and um, most of the time we're sort of thinking of it in the in um, terms of how much preparation is required for them to get what their needs met, so what they're wanting to get out of the process. So for a survivor or the person that's been harmed, um, it might not be the right time at that point um, for restorative justice, but it might be something that they want to do at a later stage. So we can offer the process um, uh, after sentencing, before the person's released from prison, if they have a prison sentence, um, at any time um, bef- um, from when the event happened to to whenever. Um, yeah, but most of them um, are done pre-sentence, so that's in between a, um, a perpetrator pleading guilty and being sentenced. So we we kind of talk about three things. We talk about what happened and how come it happened and why. And we ask the person that caused the harm to talk about sort of what are the things that led up to what happened. So some of the, the background and context. We ask them to talk about what they did so that the person who's been harmed gets to experience them taking responsibility for their actions. And then we ask them to talk about what do they think about what they did now. So when they reflect back on their behaviour, what do they think about that? So any regrets? And then we um, give the person who's been harmed the opportunity to ask any questions. So for most common question for someone who's been sexually harmed is why me? You know, was there something about me that made you choose me? You know, why did you do this? What was your thinking? Did you think it was okay Um, what you did? Um, Have you had something like this happen to you? You know, all the sorts of questions that the only person who knows the answer to is the person that caused the harm. So we go through those questions. Um, We give those questions to the person who caused the harm before so that they've had a chance to reflect and think about very carefully about their answers. And we will be checking their answers to make sure that nothing they say is going to cause the person who's been harmed more harm. So if they're victim blaming or making excuses and not taking responsibility, then we'll be giving them feedback on that so that they can think carefully about what they say. It's very prepared compared to normal restorative justice. You know, the preparation can be many hours before we bring people together. And during that time, we're trying to figure out what their needs are, what they want to get out of the process. We're trying to um, figure out what capacity they have and whether that what they want is going to be able, they're going to receive it. So we look, if they offend, you know, if you think about accountability on a continuum, we're looking at where the offender might be in their level of responsibility taking and we're thinking about the, where the victim would, or the um, survivor might want them to be. And then if, there's a, if they're too far apart, then potentially that could be harmful. So we prepare the survivor for a realistic picture of what to expect. And if that's something that they, they still want to proceed with, um, we then um, support them to be ready to hear that. And for the person that's caused the harm, we're 
um, encouraging and supporting them to take responsibility. So we're trying to move them on that continuum of responsibility taking to a place that's going to be helpful and fruitful for both parties. Okay, and so the restorative justice process that you offer is always in addition to court-mandated sentences or court sentencing? No, it's... um, it's it, it can be an alternative. So someone might um, go and see a counsellor about um, their experiences. They might not wish to report to the police. It might be that some time has passed since what happened happened to them and they still um, are struggling to move on and they might wish to um, have a meeting with the person who caused them the harm 20, 30 years later, five years later. Um, or it could be that someone has reported to the police but there's not enough evidence or the police feel that uh, a prosecution is unlikely to be successful. So the police might refer it to us. Um, we call those pre-charge referrals. Um, lately, we've been having situations where it's gone to court, um, charges have been laid, Um, and it's been referred um, to us to see if we can resolve it. And and if we are, then the charges would be dropped. Yes, so it's tailored to meet the needs, and we um, describe our process as survivor-driven, so we're focused on the needs of the survivor, knowing that if we meet the needs of the survivor, we'll often also meet the needs of the person who caused the harm in terms of their rehabilitation needs, in terms of um, support and their healing and recovery as well, I guess, and um, in terms of them moving away from that place of shame into a place of restore, restoration back into the community? Well, there are essentially three stages in a restorative process. The first being everything that happens before a face-to-face dialogue. Uh, we think of that as the pre-conference stage. And in many of these kinds of cases, that's as far as it will go. Uh, either because the parties decide it's not appropriate to uh, meet face-to-face or because they've successfully gotten their needs met uh, through what happens in the pre-conference process. Uh, So that will first involve introducing people to the concept of restorative justice. Many people will not have heard of it. Uh, So explaining uh, what it is and how it works, a central premise of the process is that it's voluntary and people should be informed about what it is that they're uh, choosing to do. And and there's also assessment involved in terms of the readiness uh, or appropriateness uh, of the parties uh, bringing them together in some kind of dialogue. So it can often involve a facilitator working with the individual separately, and that could go on for quite a long time, maybe many meetings or many months. And if it proceeds it, uh, to stage two, that would be a face-to-face dialogue um, in which there's an exploration of the harm that was caused, the needs associated with that harm, and uh, coming up with a plan to address those needs as best the, uh, as best the parties can figure out. In stage two, is there sort of a set formula for how or what, what's involved in that meeting, or does it vary from session to session? There, I, I would say there are two primary modalities for stage two. Uh, the, 
the model that I think is most uh, common in Australia, and I would say here too, is a restorative conferencing model. And that's a very scripted, structured process where the facilitators are following a, a very clearly um, specified uh, sequence of, um, of questions and the parties involved know what those questions are and have often prepared in advance for them. So that's one model. The other is a much more open model, usually referred to as victim-offender dialogue. And that's uh, a model where the the facilitator takes much more of a back seat and much of the work is done in advance. And then it's the parties themselves who are entering into a conversation uh, that's supported by the facilitator. And that can be much more open-ended. Uh, the, the model that uh, we're most interested in, that we do the most research in, is the conferencing model, the much more structured model. And then so moving on from there, we get to stage three. Stage three is uh, really what happens afterwards. Uh, so presumably the uh, parties have uh, come to some kind of agreement or plan, and then there's uh, everything that needs to happen to support that plan being successful. Uh, so in some ways, you could think of it as um, you know, offender monitoring, right? Making sure that they do what they said they would do. Uh, but in other ways, we think of it more as uh, something like offender mentoring, and that is coaching and supporting a person to uh, fulfill their obligations, but often they uh, can't do it alone uh, and they need help. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's creating supportive conditions so that they can be successful and responsible. Well, okay. So there's an element there that's almost like coaching or supervision for the person that's caused harm in terms of, um, it's not that, I, I think what I'm hearing from you is it's not that they're reluctant to fulfill the obligations they committed to. It's just that it sounds like some of those are difficult or challenging and they need support. Uh, well, I mean, people are complicated and backtrack uh, and, um, uh, you know, and not want to honor obligations that they, that they agreed to. Uh, but um, I think more often than not, it's, it's a question of uh, the su- providing the support. And it's, you know, it can be uh, uh, pretty straightforward. For example, we uh, often see requests for formal apologies, and maybe there's an apology letter that needs to get written. That seems straightforward, but in our culture, uh, Australian or American, we're rarely taught to apologize. We know what it means. We're maybe grabbed by the ear and told to apologize, but more than just saying, I'm sorry, an apology is quite an involved process and we're pretty sensitive to it. In other words, uh, if we hear an insincere apology, that can be quite infuriating. So helping someone craft an apology that is sincere uh, is a uh, can can require a, a fair bit of coaching. It means that they would be asked to really articulate the um, what happened and, and what harm they caused and what their role was in it. In other words, that they're taking full responsibility and uh, not minimizing it, uh, and how they um, have come to understand uh, their role in terms of uh, presumably expressing remorse. And then uh, really fully articulating both what they won't do and what they will do in response to what they've done. Uh, And what they won't do is in the vein of um, 
repeating the behavior, but also in terms of maybe what kind of help they're going to get to ensure that they don't repeat the behavior. Maybe they'll say in an apology letter that I don't want to do this again, and therefore I'm going to get some kind of counseling. Uh, and then, uh, then there's the will do, what it will do. And that's really about taking responsibility uh, for their behavior and doing something proactive uh, to take responsibility. Uh, so whatever that may be, uh, either to repair the harm that's been done, if that's possible, or to provide additional reassurance that uh, they can be positive members of the community. So looking at the... Uh, looking at the role of the person that's done harm within this system, what you're describing sounds uh, could almost be uh, uh, under the banner of a self-help or self-development or self-improvement program rather than a justice program. Obviously, it's both, but uh, compared to the standard model, it sounds like there's much more self-development involved. Well, there's. I think that's what uh, many uh, survivors are looking for. We often hear... Uh, f- from survivors that, uh, um, there, again, there's no universals here, but the first uh, request that we often hear is simply acknowledgement. That is that they're um, wanting people to acknowledge that they have uh, experienced this harm, they want to be believed, and, um, and that acknowledgement uh, would want uh, presumably come from the person who caused that harm, uh, but also from others who, who may be dismissive. It could be friends or family or the larger community. So acknowledgement is the first step. And then beyond that, uh, they often say, I just don't want this person to do this again, uh, you know, either to me or to anybody else. And so what kind of reassurance can I have that this won't happen again? And that takes us into this uh, uh, journey of um, treatment or uh, self-help or, or uh, some kind of uh, educational um, or counseling experience that would, uh, for many people, provide that kind of reassurance. It's so radically diametrically opposed to the mainstream justice system where the two uh, sides, the two parties get to court and uh, it's mostly uh, a process of denial and uh, playing down of the harm that happened. And then uh, if the uh, perpetrator or the person that's caused harm uh, goes to jail, perhaps there's a Uh, satisfaction on a revenge level, but not much of a sense that improvement in the person has happened and therefore that uh, the harm won't happen to someone else uh, again in the future. They sound so radically different the way you describe them. Yeah, and of course we can understand people's anger and retributive feelings. Uh, That's, um, you know, it's basically predictable. Uh, And, um, you know, and I I don't mean to dismiss those the, uh, those inclinations at all. But I think when people step back uh, after their anger settles and think about um, realistic outcomes from a punitive framework, most people will say they don't expect the person to become better, uh, you know, go to jail and become a better person uh, or learn from the experience in a meaningful way or have uh, learned to do something that will prevent them from uh, behaving in this this way. In fact, many people will say they expect the people to be worse, more embittered, more resentful, more oppositional uh, when they leave 
uh, jail. If we're talking criminal justice, uh, for us, we primarily think about students being expelled. Uh, and so if they've been expelled, uh, do we think that they're going to be better people as a result of that? And usually people say no. And so that, that causes us uh, to think differently about how to go about this. Uh, so you're right. Everything in our current system drives offenders into denial of responsibility and uh, for them to become defensive. And that's perfectly rational on their part. If they're expecting to get hammered uh, in the uh, judicial process, then they're going to do everything they can to avoid the hammer. Uh, And in a restorative process, we're trying to turn that uh, premise on its head and say, how can we create the conditions in which it might be possible for someone to truly take responsibility for the harm they've caused? And that just requires a very different method than the, what the courts or campus judicial systems provide. Mm, yeah. Wow. I'm just, um, yeah, very, very touched by that. It's, they're, they're just such different approaches, such different systems. And I can't help thinking like, um, Pull, pull me back from this, if this is me putting too much of a silver lining on things. Um, but the way you're talking about it, I can't help thinking that the longer-term outcomes for uh, the people that have um, been the victims of harm and the people that have committed the harm, uh, is uh, am I right in thinking that the longer-term outcomes are going to be better with either a combination of traditional justice and restorative justice or with just restorative justice? Uh, Yeah, I think there's enough research on restorative justice to say that that's generally true. There isn't enough research on uh, restorative justice for uh, cases of sexual violence uh, to really definitively answer that. Uh, It's taken a long time to um, get permission uh, to, to move forward, There's, there was a lot of resistance to using restorative practice uh, for these kinds of cases. So we're really at the beginning stages, but we, um, you know, more anecdotally, uh, when there are cases, what people describe coming out of it can be pretty profound, uh, that, that they're really getting their needs met in a, a more meaningful way uh, than... Um, you know, than what they experienced by uh, going through a, a more adversarial system. Where does that resistance normally come from and what are the concerns of people? Uh, well, it's, it's um, understandable. Uh, we, first of all, in, in our culture, have a lot of antipathy towards uh, people who cause sexual harm. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of stigma and people don't trust that they can change or behave differently. So there's a lot of expectation that they will um, use a restorative process in some kind of manipulative way, uh, either to avoid responsibility uh, or to uh, potentially cause further harm. What we notice anecdotally is survivors again and again telling us that they feel lighter and less weighed down by their experiences, that, that they, in that process of having a voice and, and having um, it affirmed that it wasn't their fault because often survivors think, what, what did I do that made this happen to me? I must have done something. 
um, and to have the person say it was nothing you did, it was entirely me, um, is like a huge weight off their shoulders. Um, so some of that um, self-blame can disappear. Um, the things that just go round and round in their heads that they don't know the answers to get answered. Um, it's just that being able to see that other person as, as a human being and not this monster that did this thing. We uh, we believe anecdotally that their mental health and physical well-being indicators improve. Um, we hope that they're less likely to be um, offended again against as a result of that because they're going to be less vulnerable, perhaps have more ability to have stronger boundaries about you know, um, where they put themselves in terms of relationships and things. So those are the, um, the sort of high-level kind of outcomes. Um, what they say they want is they say they want this not to happen to somebody else and they want to know that the person's not going to do this to somebody else because more often than not that's their biggest worry is that somebody else will have to go through what they've been through. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. This is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. Yeah, one of the, uh, in doing my research, I see that one of the critical voices that's out there, and I'll just give voice to this for a second, is something along the lines of restorative justice is too soft. Um, the people we're talking about are evil and uh, need to be uh, punished for what they've done and anything else is too soft. Yeah, well, there, you know, when we talk about sexual harm, we talk about a great range of behavior. And, um, you know, so it's hard to lump everybody into one category. I'm sure there are many people who cause sexual harm uh, for which a restorative process is just not appropriate. You know, they're not in a place to take responsibility. But I often uh, reflect on a recent study uh, that was conducted by um, uh, some researchers who surveyed uh, students at a, a large public university in in the United States. And what they did was they surveyed 834 female students. And of of that group, 284 of them, or 34%, uh, said that they had experienced some kind of sexual assault during their time at the university. So it's it's a huge percentage. And then only 16 of them, or 6%, reported that, uh, that victimization uh, to anybody on campus. And that would include the counseling center, um, the health services, uh, you know, the, uh, some kind of conduct office or campus police. Uh, only 16 of them. And then 
I just want to interrupt a second. I just uh, just want to acknowledge as we look over figures like that of just how horrible and prevalent uh, the situation is. I just I just never want to let figures like that go past without acknowledging the horror of them. Please go on. Yeah, pervasive problem, and only five of those two hundred and eighty four students filed a formal complaint. So two percent of the students who were victimized filed a formal complaint, which led to some kind of disciplinary process. Uh, so if, if you say that the choice is between a traditional hearing process and restorative justice, what you're really saying is that we only, we only want to serve 2% of victims and 98% uh, will not be served or 98% of um, offenders uh, will not experience any kind of justice whatsoever and will go, you know, on their merry way. Many, we think, many more uh, victims will make use of a restorative process that it is better aligned with what they're looking for in terms of a justice experience. And so there will be much more accountability uh, than in a traditional process. And I didn't even, that, you know, when I say five formal complaints filed, we don't, I don't know the outcomes of those five cases. We, you know, you could easily imagine that half of them were found not in violation because it's hard to uh, successfully prosecute these cases. Uh, so really, we're talking about almost nobody experiencing justice through a formal process. And at least in the U.S., uh, over the last eight years, there has been a significant effort across campuses nationally to make reporting more accessible to survivors, to um, beef up adjudication systems so that survivors will feel like they're being taken seriously, to make it uh, more likely to find accused students in violation of campus policy, to uh, increase sanctions, to um, make sure that everyone knows this is being taken seriously. And none of that has really changed these basic numbers. Uh, so we're really learning that this is, not, this is not what students are looking for in a process. So if we're going to have a justice system, we really we have to match it with what um, victims are, um, you know, victims' needs are. Well, I just um, I, I want you to know I had tears in my eyes as you were describing uh, those those outcomes. And I, I very much hear your caveats around saying that's not something that can be offered or promised and that's not something that happens all of the time or even most of the time. But nevertheless, that's very touching what happens. Yeah, and our experience is that more often than not, it does. Um, I remember one situation we had with a young boy who had um, been sexually offended against by his father um, along with his sister. And um, he was only young, 12-ish, and um, he really wanted to have a restorative process with his father when he discovered his sister was having one. And what he said when he came out of the meeting was he felt like he'd cleared out his pile of junk in the toy box. <laughs> like he'd sorted it, sorted the pile of, of stuff, um, which was a really lovely th thing to hear. That, and that's how he made sense of the experience in his, in his mind. It's a great younger person's explanation of what goes on in the mind and what goes on in our psychology. 
we do work with young people and children on occasion, very rarely. Um, but some of the things that they they just want sometimes to hear the words, I'm not angry at you for telling and it wasn't your fault. And that's actually all they might actually need. Um, so we, we, we can um, have them for all or part of the process depending on what their needs are. Um, and, of course, when we're working with children, we're usually working with child therapists and we're making sure that they've got good support um, and we just only involve them in the bits that are going to be helpful to them and still kind of have that adult speak where their caregivers or their parents can have the adult conversation that they might need to have with the person that caused the harm as well, separate from the children not having to be exposed to that. I once heard some uh, folklore that the outcomes uh, that um, uh, perpetrators give to themselves through restorative justice processes are often either more complicated or more challenging or harder or just more than the traditional justice system might have given them. Do you think there's any truth in that? Well, if if the system is built in an adversarial way and then the incentive for an offender is to move into the zone of denial you can build all kinds of um, self-rationalizations into your behavior and then really come to believe them and there's so much at stake that you become very invested in that defensive position If, as I was saying before, if we've created the conditions in which someone can really look at their behavior honestly and understand the uh, the harm that it caused, the uh, the trauma, the hurt, that's a very painful thing to um, uh, to witness and recognize. And uh, and then I think true culpability emerges, and so people are willing to go quite far. you know, down the road, I, I you know, I know of a, an example of a, a student who said to the um, to the victim, he said, you know, like, what do you want me to do? Like, do you do you do you want me to kill myself? Like, what can I do? How far do you want me to go to show you that I um, I, I want to take responsibility for this? Uh, so that's a very dramatic statement. But I think it was uh, stated to try and convey his recognition that he'd caused this harm and that he was willing to do, you know, essentially whatever it took um, to make amends for what he'd done. Uh, And, of course, that's not what she was looking for, uh, you know, from him. Uh, But I think it does speak to the potential uh, for that level of acknowledgement that uh, many survivors are looking for. Wow, that's uh, I know that's only a one-off, but I can imagine that dialogue, and it makes my skin tingle and tears come to my eye. Yeah, it's powerful, and I don't even want to um, suggest this is the inevitable outcome. Uh, certainly, uh, people can be disappointed. Uh, people are at different levels of maturity and different capacity for acknowledging harm. Uh, and so what we do in a restorative process is try and help people understand the situation that they're in. Uh, so we might ask, for example, given that 
you know, this person doesn't really fully understand the level of harm that they've caused? Is there something that you want to do to uh, help them better understand it and then see what kind of response you get to that before moving to the next stage? So it's all really about um, making the communication as transparent as possible so that people can identify what they um to learn what they want to know and uh, and if they can identify specific needs, get those needs met. What about on the offender side? Uh, what outcomes do you see uh, uh, for offenders compared to uh, uh, offenders that don't go through a restorative justice process? I, I think for offenders that um, the fronting up and taking responsibility can feel really um, freeing. Um, and when and often they're scared to say um, to tell the truth about um, their motivations and when we that sometimes that's one of those helpful hurtfuls <laughs> you know like it can be really hurtful to hear but it's actually really helpful to hear and um, like for example I was selfish and I was only thinking about my own needs I mean that's quite a hard thing to hear about some from somebody that's harmed you, but it actually helps um, you be able to distance yourself and move on. Um, so for them, they I think they find that as an unexpected um, thing that when they are able to say the truth about why they did what they did, that, that it somehow frees them up. It, it's helpful with shame because a lot of people that have both been um, harmed and caused harm feel a lot of shame around what they did and um, you know shame is one of those things that once it comes out into the light can dissipate um, and shift um, there's always a lot of tears <laughs> so that shedding of tears and that, um, that that depth and strength of that emotional um, experience can be very cathartic for, for both parties often um, the person who caused the harm is quite surprised at how understanding and forgiving that the person who they've harmed can be. Um, often they would almost prefer them to be really angry than to be understanding and forgiving. And I think also when you put things in place to make things right or put things right, you get to feel better about yourself. Um like you've done something that that could make a difference and I think that's helpful. Why do you think that offenders sometimes want the person that's been harmed to simply be angry? Because I think they think that they deserve it and they want to, you know, they feel that they need to be. So it's almost like they want they, they, they want to experience punishment almost through the other person's anger. Yeah, I think they, I think they do. I think they expect it and... and um, see it as, as, a, as a way of, I don't know what the word I would use to describe that, but it's it's some way of making amends is by taking it on the chin, you know. <laughs> but really what makes a difference for someone in terms of sexual offending is having proper treatment, what we call harmful sexual behaviour treatment. And so we don't propose that a one-off intervention is going to change someone's um, likelihood of reoffending, and certainly just apologizing and saying sorry isn't going to um, so we one of the um, agreements that 
virtually always comes out of our processes and a commitment to do a harmful sexual behaviour treatment program. Can you say more about the specific outcomes or restorations that tend to come out of uh, facilitated sessions? So the sorts of things that um, survivors tell us that they want are things like um, a commitment to do treatment to make sure it doesn't happen again, Um, safety planning, so they're often worried about others and want to know that that person's not going to be in a position where, in particular with child sex offenders, they're not going to be in a position where they can re-offend, in other words, unsupervised contact with children. Often they want to have an agreement about how they can coexist in the shared community. So often the offender is known or the person that caused the harm is known to the person who's been harmed. And so they, they're they in a family or a know that they're going to have to come across each other again and they're going to want to navigate that, figure out you know who has preference to what events that they might come across each other or they just want to know that if you come across each other in the street what you want the other person to do because that's kind of a worry that often sits with survivors what happens if he's there if I see him somewhere what will I do and they might want to say I'm okay with you acknowledging me and saying hi but leave or it might be that they're um, like If you see me at all, I don't want you to acknowledge me. I just want you to leave where I'm at so I can enjoy where I'm at without having to worry about you being there. Or it might be that they want to have contact with them going forward. So we we discuss that. We discuss reparation, which is a payment for emotional harm. It's a difficult conversation and a lot of survivors aren't interested in having um, an offer of reparation. But if they are... Um, we check out whether that's doable, achievable, whether the person actually has the ability to make an offer, and if there's a huge discrepancy between what they might um, want and what the other person has the ability or the desire to pay, um, we make sure that everyone's aware of the limitations, and then an offer is made and it's either accepted or not accepted, um, or it's not on the table for discussion. So in some cases, to a degree, uh, you can put a, not so much put a price on damage done, but uh, money shows a, a level of genuine um, exchange or reversal between people. Yeah, I mean, often, I mean, there's the costs of surviving a, um, an experience of trauma is enormous. And it's time off work, it's lost opportunities, lost educational opportunities, it's, you know, ongoing mental health issues. There's all sorts of costs and often people want would like a contribution towards that. There's no way that they could a, a person could ever pay what the cost really was if you put it down in a dollar form, but they can make a contribution. And sometimes it's specific, like... I missed out on going to university because I was so um, so not coping during my school years that I didn't um, achieve academically, and I always wanted to do this. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I guess it's in in some cases it could be almost like a litmus test if a uh, offender is uh, saying, "I'm I'm sorry, this." happened to you and I would like to undo the impacts on you, then in some cases, right, well, one of the ways you could undo that impact is by covering the costs that it's caused me. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, next episode will be all about what it's like to facilitate the process and how it compares to other models. If you're having the feels after this episode, by which I mean uh, if this has brought up thoughts or feelings you need help with, uh, then think about the self-care you might need. Uh, some of us have friends we call on, some of us have counsellors, and at the end of the day, you can always do a search on telephone support service in your area. If you're wanting to find a restorative justice practitioner for yourself, I'd strongly recommend you wait for the next episode because it goes into detail about what to look for, along with a couple of cautionary tales. Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures. We work with the world in the areas of sexuality, self-development and relationships. We achieve this by doing the following five things. One, we offer pre-recorded workshops that you can watch at any time in the privacy of your home. Two, we run online live workshops. Three, we run in-person workshops, mostly in Australia. Four, I offer counselling, specialising in the things you hear me talking about on this podcast. And five, we make our famous consent cards, which you can view for free online or purchase pretty cheaply. You can find out about all of these things at curiouscreatures.biz. The best way to stay in touch regarding workshops is to sign up to our free monthly mailing list. And we also have a forum for you to interact with other listeners of this podcast and the Curious Creatures community about all sorts of things. Go to forum.curiouscreatures.biz. And lastly, if you can think of anyone else that might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. My name is Rog. You're awesome. This episode was mixed by Aman Dembla. And thanks for listening.